Welcome to the Nutrition Science Podcast, where we help you cut through the noise and make informed, science-based decisions about nutrition and your health. All right, welcome back to the Nutrition Science Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about how to heal your depression with food. I have my guest. It is Dr. Nicole lippmann Barilli, and we are going to be discussing this topic. Dr. Lippmann is a clinical psychologist, and she focuses on OCD, treating OCD, anxiety, and depression as well. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. Okay. And so today, she's, we're going to be talking about nutrition, though. So what I want to start with is first getting into a discussion about how Dr. Nicole actually got into nutrition and why this is such an important part of her communication online and her practice now. Yes. Well, Adrian, thank you for having me on. I'm really excited to talk today. So around the age of 25, I got a diagnosis of PCOS, so polycystic ovarian syndrome. And at the time, I wasn't super concerned. I wasn't thinking about starting a family or anything like that. But then I was, as I was getting older, my symptoms really progressed. And at some point, I stopped menstruating for about like nine or 10 months and that started to really worry me. And just coincidentally, at the same time, I, I started getting into what I know now is sort of like the wellness industry. And I stumbled upon on Instagram, I stumbled upon a post about a 21 day elimination challenge, food elimination challenge. And at the time, the way I was eating was not well at all. I, it was a lot of fast food. I was still in grad school. So I was really busy and I was working. So I ate like a lot of pizza and pasta and bagels. I was like very much my standard diet. And I decided, I don't really know what made me actually do it, but I just decided, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to try this 21 day challenge only really thinking about the food aspect in terms of, okay, maybe this will help me like learn how to cook, improve my diet. So I I did it. And the way that I am as a person is that once I decide to do something, I, I will go all in and I'll and I'll finish it. So I remember very distinctly by day four being like, I'm going to die. Like, I don't even know how to feed myself like this is horrible. But I stuck with it. And throughout the process, I figured out how to kind of feed myself and how to cook. And on the 21st day, I got my period. And food was the only variable that I ended up changing. I was exercising the same amount all aspects of my life were the same but the fact that I actually got my period on day 21 blew my mind and that was a Saturday night and I was at a concert and I was totally unprepared but I was so ecstatic and then the next day was Sunday and I had literally spent probably four or five hours that day just doing research online related to this connection between diet and PCOS and I ended up reading like a bunch of different studies which led me down another rabbit hole. So I became kind of obsessed with this idea that diet and changes in food can enact these kinds of changes on your health. And I was already, you know, I was already basically a psychologist at that point. Um, and then after that, stumbled upon a certification program. It was a nine-month certification program, pretty much all online with the exception of like one workshop that we had to attend. And it was the certification to be a nutritional therapist. Through the Nutritional yeah. Therapy Association. Yeah. So that one's called the NTP, correct? Yes, that's NTP. Okay. So you had done this 21-day challenge, experienced benefits from it. Of course, like 
said you weren't eating very well before. So changing your diet to a better pattern is typically going to lead to some health improvements in pretty much any case, no matter what you change it to. If you were like eating, you know, quote unquote, standard American diet and not really paying attention to things before. But of course, that piqued your interest in nutrition. And then you went and got that NTP certification, nutritional therapy practitioner. So what happened from there? So after, after that, I, for the, the next year, I was like very much consuming wellness kind of content. So that kind of content related to nutrition looks like seed oils are inflammatory. A lot of demonizing around like certain foods, a lot of like morality around certain foods, only buying organic, boosting things to boost your hormones. Like I was getting sort of fed a lot of that information. And it wasn't actually until COVID that I started realizing that the information that I was taught was inaccurate because at the time when COVID happened, a lot of the people that I was following that fit the wellness community were posting conspiratorial information related to COVID. So my thought process was, what is happening? How, if they're believing this, what else are they saying, right? That that's also potentially conspiratorial or just false information. So I started investigating and looking up certain claims and realizing that a lot of it was wrong. And, and the, in fact, a lot of the information that I was taught through the NTP program was also wrong. The, some of the foundations was correct, like your macronutrients and sort of how to build a plate, but a lot of the information around that was just wrong. So I sort of, 2020 was a period of time where I tried to unlearn certain things and tried to start following people who are actually had degrees in nutrition and actually knew what they were talking about. And then I really started delving into the research related to mental health and diet simply because, you know, just being a psychologist, I, I started wanting to understand more of that relationship because I saw more of that information being put out on social media. So I, I just wanted to, I just had an interest in that. And then that just, my interest has just never stopped. And it's kind of obsessively led me to the point where I am now. And, and where is that point now? Just talking about nutrition and psychology more so than anything else or kind of making it your specialty, it seems like as of late. I am. I mean, I, I'm, I already have, you know, the specialty as a psychologist, I'm an OCD specialist and I treat anxiety. So I, I, I have that, but I got really interested in the diet mental health relationship and, and more so even interested in the fact that people are just putting out this false content and being reductionist about it. And I really want to be someone who's communicating about this accurately. So not only do I have like a personal interest in this and my appetite is insatiable when it comes to this stuff, I, I, I think that there needs to be a voice of reason as it relates to what the research actually is saying, because it's leading down people down wrong paths. And, and if we're trying to do no harm here, I think that what's really important is just having someone, at least in the field, say, hey, let's actually look at some of these studies and let's direct people towards the help that they need based on what's going on in their lives and what's accurate. Yeah, definitely. So, so this leads us into what we want to discuss today, and which is the main pressing question that everyone has is we want to know how to heal depression and anxiety with food. Like, how, how does that happen? Can you, can you explain that to us? I can, because you can't. So you can't heal your depression or anxiety with food alone. And there's a lot of caveats to that statement. So 
one thing that I think is pretty clear so far when it comes to the research that we have that's actually available, this is coming more from sort of like prospective cohort studies and some of the randomized control studies, is your symptom severity is a very significant variable, moderating variable when it comes to is diet actually going to help you? So what that means is that if you have moderate to severe depression or even moderate to severe anxiety, if you are simply just changing your diet and not changing any other factors in your life, not seeking out therapy or other sort of services, likely is diet's not going to do anything for your depression. If you're someone who has mild depression, if you're someone who has what's called subclinical levels of depression, so you're experiencing some challenges, but you're not exactly meeting any sort of criteria that would put you in the mild category, and you don't have any sort of medical conditions that are also inflammatory in nature, and you don't have any sort of extensive mental health history or sort of extensive family mental health history, then maybe changing your diet can actually lead to some improvements in depression. I would say the research related to diet and anxiety is even worse. We have, there's like barely any research related to in humans, diet and anxiety, but the stuff that we have for diet and depression, I think what's really clear is that the, the severity of your diagnosis is going to be significant when it comes to the outcome. If you're just going to use diet. The other thing that we know very clearly just from psychological research is that moderate to severe depression responds much more effectively to things like therapy, medication, and other sorts of, in addition to that, other sorts of lifestyle changes that you can make. So if you're, again, if you're someone in the mild category, if you're someone with like subclinical symptoms and you don't have any sort of other extensive medical history or, or mental health history, Perhaps changing your diet, particularly if your like baseline diet is pretty poor. So if your baseline diet is devoid of fiber, devoid of like, you know, vegetables and, and things like that, then yes, you, you may have a greater chance of actually experiencing some sort of mental health benefits if you're changing your diet. Yeah. So if you have severe depression, mild or moderate to severe is what you're saying, then diet is probably not the best place to be looking in terms of improving symptoms. And this is an important message because I, I see this quite often and it's what you were alluding to earlier where people who are trying to sell various programs or supplements or uh, different diets will make claims around anxiety and depression saying that they can heal it or significantly improve it. And what you're saying is it's probably not going to be the case unless it's more mild in that case, it, it could benefit. So when you say it can have a benefit in those particular cases, are there certain characteristics of nutrition that seem to be important? Like, are there certain aspects of, of dietary change that someone who may, if someone was dealing with like subclinical depressive symptoms, like you mentioned, and they did want to see if nutrition did play a role. What are there some things that they would that seem to be more important than others in the research? So what it seems like it's it's your dietary pattern. And so there was a there was a review that looked at, I think it was a meta-analysis looking at different dietary patterns. So they looked at like a pro-vegetarian diet, a Tuscan diet, Mediterranean diet, and basically all of them showed benefit 
over time in terms of sticking with that kind of dietary pattern. So I think it it's fair to say that if your baseline diet is kind of poor and you choose one of these other healthy dietary patterns, whether it's more vegetarian or it's Mediterranean style, and you have mild symptoms and the other conditions that I mentioned, then prob- then that's probably a good fit in terms of if you're just going to use diet and change it into something. There's more research related to the Mediterranean diet than other dietary patterns. So there's more research that that is sort of reinforcing that Mediterranean style diet is probably more effective. But I don't think we have enough necessarily there as a comparator. But so far, that kind of style of eating seems to be potentially helpful for somebody. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that I always talk about when I see, you know, kind of the Mediterranean diet being, you know, people promoted is, okay, the Mediterranean diet is the healthiest. The thing is, the Mediterranean diet is just the dietary pattern that's most studied. It doesn't necessarily say that this eating this specific way is what you have to do. It's just a dietary pattern that is high in fruits and vegetables, high in whole grains, limited in like, dairy sources and red meat and this pattern is just the most well-studied type of dietary pattern because in research we want to put a label on the diet that you're having someone do because it's easier to to conduct studies and define and compare across studies so there's a lot of research done on the Mediterranean dietary pattern but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to follow what that diet looks like. We, I think the important thing to take away from that is the important characteristics that I just mentioned a second ago when it comes to like a Mediterranean quote unquote diet is, you know, more unprocessed, minimally processed foods for lots of fruits and vegetables. And then in terms of macronutrients, like it's kind of balanced in terms of fiber and carbohydrates. Like it's not it's not high carb or high or not fiber, fat and carbohydrates. It's not high carb or high fat. It's kind of in the middle. There's a decent amount of fat, decent amount of carbohydrates in the diet. And I think that's just overall probably dietary principles and approach kind of, it just fits a lot of the, the things that we know to be good for our health in terms of dietary patterns. So I just wanted to make that clear because a lot of people hear Mediterranean and they think, oh, I have to eat like people who live in that region do. And it's not necessarily that. It's just these underlying principles of why that dietary pattern is um, is shown to be helpful are what are important and not necessarily eating like a Mediterranean person. Just to add to your question too, because I think this is this part is really important. So there was a study, I just posted about this yesterday, but I want to mention this because there's some behavioral things to take into account when it comes to like if we're again if we're looking at an outcome of we want to decrease depression or heal depression then we also have to take into account symptomology of depression and understand what that actually means so the there's one study that it was a randomized control trial they took a young adult male population for 3 weeks split them into two groups the dietary group was instructed to stick with the mediterranean diet but what the researchers did in terms of giving them meals and recipes is that is they took into account two factors that I think are really important. So they purposefully created the recipes and meal plans to be low cost and also to take less time. 
And if we're thinking about even a mildly or subclinically depressed person, I think that's exceptionally important because we know in terms of symptomology, technically speaking, usually there's low motivation, there's, there's low willingness, right, or low motivation to engage in positive adaptive behaviors that we know help with a person's depression. So modifying, if, if you are going to use your diet as a way to potentially try to change or, or support your mental health, also taking into account what your current symptomology is and then structuring that around that, I think is really important. Yeah. Yeah. So in that case, kind of lowering the barrier to entry and making, making it easier, which is, you know, kind of the opposite of what we end up getting exposed to sometimes online is the, the recommendations that are made and the recipes that are made typically are, you know, more difficult to to follow and implement yeah and they could be expensive and and i think we need to make it realistic for people like to use processed foods you can use processed food even if you want to stick to a mediterranean style diet you know you, you can expand and add your cultural dishes into that it doesn't have to be strictly you know what we see online as it regards to you know what constitutes a mediterranean diet so there's a lot that i think is not shown accurately on social media that 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 could actually also fit into a really healthy dietary pattern but it's not being you know reinforced in that way yeah and just like you mentioned you know making things easier so what are some what are some ways that that, let's say someone's depressed they they struggle with making dietary changes it feels overwhelming what are some things that you think can make make it easier in order to you know make healthy dietary choices yeah, so I immediately think about depending on what a person's level of severity here is, right? So if we're talking about someone like mildly depressed, and let's say they have the resources where they can go to the grocery store and they can buy these kinds of foods, then I would think about the smallest changes that you can make. So for instance, even drinking enough water, that could be one thing. Also, we know in depression, altered eating patterns happen. So for some people, people overeat, for some people undereat. So in that context, it's actually just making sure is the person eating enough if the person's under eating and if the person's overeating, then we have to take care of that. So I would actually think about the smallest changes based on where a person's actually starting. So if someone's having zero servings of fruit and vegetable, can you just add one of those servings to your day based on what you're already eating, right? And based on what you can afford. Buying already pre-made Frozen food, I think, is a great option because it lasts for a long time. So, for again, if we're thinking about mildly depressed person, if they don't have the will to eat one day, but maybe they do three days later, it would wouldn't be great, right, to buy all fresh food because in that case, likely things would spoil. So, I think buying some potentially prepared frozen meals, like frozen vegetables and, and frozen fruit, things like that, could be really good to have on hand uh, because they're quick and they're easy. So I think just thinking of the smallest possible incremental change that a person can do on a day-to-day basis actually with their current symptoms. Yeah, yeah. So baby steps. Baby steps. I like that. And something that, that you kind of alluded to that I often recommend for people who struggle with this is to just stick to a meal like pattern to make it you know, you like just easier to make sure that they eat enough, like in, and just, you have to eat, you know, at least 
at eight o'clock at noon and at five o'clock you have a meal, whatever that is, you know, just there's, there's something that you actually eat during those times. And I, I find that that's helpful for getting into a pattern of just eating healthier as well, because when you're intentional about, okay, I'm going to be eating at this time, what a lot of people tend to do is they just don't eat <laughs> until they get really hungry and then they eat a big meal and then they snack and snack and and there's no intentionality behind it. So really, you know, kind of sticking to a schedule is something I highly recommend for for most people. And And it doesn't have to be perfect or every single day, but kind of having a general, okay, I eat three meals, one's in the morning, one's you know, early afternoon, ones in the evening, I think is a really good strategy. Yeah, no, that is a good strategy. It kind of goes along. There's this, it's not a concept, but it's, it's a really a behavioral form of treatment and depression. It's called behavioral activation. And that, that goes, that fits really nicely in that kind of model, because the whole point is to get somebody engaged in these kinds of behaviors on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So next thing I want to talk about is the gut brain connection. Because I've heard that 90% of our serotonin is made in our gut. And it seems to be that our gut can potentially heal or improve significantly mental health issues based on some of the content that I've seen online. So can you can you give your thoughts on this connection in, in that specific statistic as well? Yeah, that is a accurate statistic. But it is so wrong. It is so wrong. So yes, our gut can produce all the neurotransmitters that our brain is able to produce. So beyond serotonin, there's GABA, there's acetylcholine, there's lots of different neurotransmitters. But these are just molecules. And depending on where they are in the body, they function differently. So when your gut produces neurotransmitters, your gut is using them for other kinds of functions like peristalsis and other sort of gut-related functions. When your brain produces them, because the rest of that is produced in your brain, it stays in your brain and it's used for things that we kind of know about. So your mood, learning, behavior, movement, all of those kinds of things, even appetite. So your gut-derived neurotransmitters do not cross the blood-brain barrier. The things that do cross the blood-brain barrier are some of their metabolites and also some of their precursors. So, so the thinking and the hypothesis there is that potentially some of those things are able to cross the blood-brain barrier or they interact with the vagus nerve and then there's communication there. But it's not accurate to say that because our gut produces all the serotonin, we should be eating foods that produce all the serotonin in our gut and then that is going to heal our depression because that's not how that works. Okay. So when it comes to the relationship though, so now we know that serotonin made it, made in our gut doesn't act in the brain. So healing your gut isn't going to increase serotonin. Is there a relationship that that's like that you're aware of at this point between the microbes in our gut or digestive health and mental health conditions? So it looks to be kind of clear that anyone with digestive conditions like IBS, IBD, there's there's definitely a connection there for people. There's increased, you know, people with IBS or IBD or even ulcerative colitis, they have higher rates of depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And so for them, there's a very sort of direct connection that exists. But for someone who doesn't have those kinds of 
medical conditions, your gut health right now, I would not say is integral to your mental health at all. There is some kind of relationship that's there, but that's kind of all we really know. We don't really have the specifics with regards to what does this relationship actually mean from like a practical or clinical standpoint. So, you know, there's no good research suggesting, as an example, that if you take certain strains of probiotics, that that's what's going to reduce like your anxiety and depression. Like we, we really don't have the understanding or the research available that that tells us anything in terms of a practical application of this is what you should be doing for your gut health because this will directly connect and produce positive outcomes for your mental health. Yeah, I think this is very common with organ systems throughout our body. Um, we we tend to get marketed in a way where we think we have to pay attention to every organ system. You know, the the wellness industry will say you need need a healthy liver to have a healthy you know a healthy gut, and you need a healthy liver to have a healthy brain and. It's overcomplicating things. I see it all the time. People ask me, hey, what, what can I do to support my kidney health? I'm like, do you have kidney disease? And they're like, no. And I'm like, well, well then just do healthy things, you know, the same things that yeah. support your overall health. It's like with your corner, like you go change the oil and things and you keep up with the overall maintenance, but you're not paying attention to every little, you know, and I don't know much about cars. So if I... But but you're not paying attention to every little thing in your corner in in keeping up with everything, and that's we don't necessarily have to do that. Um, if you're engaging in healthy habits that improve your overall health and the important aspects of your overall health, you don't necessarily have to like institute a gut health protocol and a liver health protocol and a and a brain health protocol on top of that. Like these things all translate amongst one another and in, in the things like exercise and eating a healthier diet and stress management, all of these things improve our overall health. And, and what I always tell people, because sometimes with things like mental health, people will ask me that I'm working with like, oh, is this going to help my depression or anxiety? And I always tell them like, you know, I can't speak to that at all, but when you improve your overall health, Sometimes it has positive impacts on your mental health, on your hormones, on other factors as well, just because you're improving the function of the whole system. And so just, it's not necessarily healing your depression, but you just, your system's working better and you feel better as a result of that. So that's something that I definitely want to make a point about is when someone's trying to tell you, hey, you need to be worried about your gut and you need to do these things for your gut and you don't have a digestive issue like you're not someone with like as you mentioned like ibs or ibd or something along those lines it's probably misleading information it's it, it's a new angle to market to you and hormones and gut and all of these different things are, are just ways to cause you to feel like something's wrong so that you can become a customer. So just be aware of those types of claims of probiotics that, that are going to heal your gut and improve your mental health and things like that, because those are pretty much always misleading. Definitely. I mean, I think that the wellness industry has hijacked the gut 
and you know what they think Hippocrates have said if he even said that they really hijacked this to market around this as the end all be all that this connects to any other system and so therefore they have a solution and it's usually some kind of yeah gut health protocol or supplement or powder or something and that that's going to lead to all of these kinds of improvements as if it's a panacea and it's it's so inaccurate and it and it really is just a really good narrative and marketing scheme that confuses people and the confusion leads them to buying these kinds of products because it, it it makes it seem like it's true yeah the all disease begins in the gut is yeah that i've heard that so many times and it, it's it's like no it doesn't cardiovascular disease is in the heart and blood vessels like yeah. it, it that it's not the gut and, and same thing with type 2 diabetes is in the pancreas and muscles and liver it's not the gut yeah if you actually understand anyone who says that is not either they're trying to sell something or they just have such a poor understanding of disease pathology like because Cancer doesn't begin in the gut. Mm -hmm. You know, all of the major diseases, Alzheimer's disease, all, none of these things begin in the gut. Yep. Digestive issues begin in the gut, but but they kind of, oh, they don't necessarily end there, but, you know, that's where they're located primarily. And, and yeah, that claim, it sounds, it sounds cool. You know, some person, some historical figure said that all disease begins in the gut and you know, it's a good way to, yeah. to, like you said, like we talked about earlier, just turn people into customers. And then, yeah. and then with the gut and with everything else, like we all experience digestive issues at some point. And so what it's easy with, with the gut is to say, do you ever get bloated? You know, do you ever, you know, have to go right. to the restroom multiple times a day? And, and you're like, oh, wow, that, you know, that happened to me a couple of times last month. And it turns, well, and then with the gut stuff, they also will say like, are you fatigued? Do you have yes. depression? If you, I saw a list the other day that was like, if you have any of these conditions and it was like fatigue, PCOS, depression, anxiety, and it was like, you need to fix your gut. And yeah. it's just out of control. It is. It's just a narrative and it's simple. And it works and it's unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. So be careful for that. But what I want to end with is a little discussion about, you know, what to do. So for example, I know there's a spectrum. You mentioned that if you're mildly depressed, it's going to be different than if it's more severe. So maybe we can go through this kind of spectrum and give us kind of the steps that you would recommend someone taking if they're experiencing you know, that level of depression or anxiety. Yeah, sure. So let's start with subclinical, mild kind of symptoms. So if you're in that category, and again, there's no sort of extensive other mental health history, then potentially lifestyle interventions can make a big difference for you. So that could like look like changing your diet to fit what we would consider like a healthy dietary pattern. That could look like exercising more frequently on a regular basis, just working on stress management techniques, building a social support system and learning how to lean on that. Those kinds of factors can 
yield potentially bigger results for if you're in like a mild or subclinical kind of range. If you're in a moderate to severe kind of range and you're having like active symptoms, then you can absolutely do those kinds of changes. You can still do all those kinds of lifestyle intervention changes because they're overall do support your mental health and your brain health, but likely in terms of actually treating your depression, therapy, potentially looking at some medications and the combination of that protect, you know, particularly if you have severe depression is going to be way more effective than anything that you do. Because typically when we see people who have moderate to severe depression, there tends to be a more extensive genetic history. There's usually a parent or a relative that also has some kind of extensive mental health history. And that is more genetically and biologically driven. And so therefore, you know, more, more interventions that look like therapy, that look like medications are going to be way more effective at reducing and managing depression than anything else. Yeah, that's, I didn't really know that. I mean, it makes complete sense that some of the severe, you know, more severe cases have a strong genetic component to that. And that's where medication can help complete, like directly, you know, modify some of those genetic changes that that can lead someone to become more depressed or more anxious. Yeah, exactly. If if I ever, whenever I work with anybody or have a first session with anybody that talks about, you know, it, it it's becoming more clear that they have more severe depression than then, and we're looking at their, you know, family history. It's it's very clear that there's multiple relatives typically that have suffered with depressive disorders. So whether that's bipolar disorder or other stuff. So when that is present, that really is setting up a context where, okay, therapy and meds are, are, are going to be like our frontline interventions here, you know, and if a person wants to do other kinds of lifestyle interventions, great. I'll, you know, I'll always support that because that, that can matter. Exercise is even more than diet, I think. But yeah, looking at that is kind of, that's where, that's where it's going to be helpful for people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so what are the implications of that person skipping therapy and medications, you know, skipping, you know, quote unquote, conventional approaches and trying to do food and exercise instead. Honestly, just thinking about it kind of breaks my heart because, you know, being a clinical psychologist and I work intimately with people and I understand, first of all, you know, just the first point is that it it typically, people typically suffer with symptoms before they even ask for help. So it's very common for people who suffer for years before I even get to see them in, in my office. So they're already suffering for a number of years. And then if someone's seeing these messages online and let's say they're deciding to go diet and exercise and meditation first, likely what's going to happen is none of these things are going to do much. Like maybe there'll be a small uptick in something every now and then, but in terms of anything actually treating their symptoms, their symptoms are likely going to remain the same, if not worsen, depending on, you know, the severity of symptoms and their time and their money and their resources are are being put into interventions that are frankly just not meant for them. And so that that person is going to be wasting a lot of, a lot of their resources on things that are not really useful for them on any sort of practical element. And the other thing that I think is even more kind of adds to the burn here is that the way these messages are being 
discussed online is like it's it's being put on the individual as if it's solely the individual's responsibility to make all these changes. Otherwise, they either A, don't want it bad enough or B, it feels like some kind of morality and also classist judgment here because not everybody can just overhaul their diet. Not everybody can just all of a sudden, you know, join a gym and exercise and and do that. So it it's to me, these messages are very sort of derogatory in nature in the sense that it puts it all on the individual as if there's no other influences related to why they have the condition that they do. And it it's very it just lacks any sort of actual understanding of a depressed person, because if you actually knew anybody with depression or if you yourself experienced depression, you would know that the recommendation to just meditate more or to just change your diet is so insignificant because it's lacking in so many. It doesn't piece together any other parts of a person's life or take into account the actual symptomology and presentation of a depressed person. Yeah, it's just taking advantage of people when you don't have experience in that topic typically. I mean, I guess there's some people out there who are actual psychologists who have just gone rogue, but a lot of those messages I see are from people who just don't have the training at all to really understand what they're talking about. And they're, you know, saying, heal your gut and cure your depression or cure your anxiety because I did. And it's the person who had mild symptoms. They had the resources to make all of the changes. They wanted to make the changes. They were feeling bad because they weren't eating the way that the communities that they follow eat. And, and so them doing that, you know, maybe it did make them feel better, but turning around and putting that message out to individuals who are experiencing different scenarios than, than you, I think is quite dangerous and, and it's everywhere. It is, it is everywhere. And I, I always, and just to make this point to like, when I usually post about this stuff, I kind of inevitably get someone that does say, Hey, I actually changed my diet and I did feel better. And then the question is like, how did that happen? And I think that speaks to your earlier point, which is, yeah, if you are starting from a diet, that's kind of poor, and then you're making these changes, right. Where you're including all of these things and likely that's going to, yes, produce some kind of benefit. Absolutely. So it's true that for some people, yeah, they do actually feel better, less depressed when they do change their diet. So it it is possible. It's not impossible. It's just that that is a very small subset of people compared to like an actual depressed or anxious population. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I think what's happening is a lot of people are labeling themselves as I was depressed or I was anxious and food helped me. And they're speaking not from the population that you're referring to. Mm-hmm. of those individuals who would be vulnerable to these types of messages and it's just a different context and so i think the key takeaway here with you know with respect to this conversation is or this part of the conversation is that if you're someone who has been experiencing it you know you have more significant symptoms there's family history then you really need to focus on the established, you know, methods of treatment, therapy, and medication versus chasing after lifestyle as the solution. And lifestyle can be helpful, but it has to be 
approached in the context of prioritizing these other treatment modalities. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. And I, I want food to work. I want, I would love food to be an effective intervention. I would love another effective tool that I can use very practically with patients. I'm just waiting until we actually have the research to support that, particularly as it compares to other effective interventions that I would, that I use with people. Like, again, everyone has limited resources that includes time and money. And so it makes sense for people to engage in effective interventions and not things that are going to be potentially sort of intervent, you know, effective for them. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe feel more burdensome because mm-hmm. I think that that's what happens in many cases. I get so, I mean, I get so many messages of people who tell me like they were just so anxious about food. They were scared to eat anything. And this is perpetuating, <laughs> you know, this is, this is making, if someone's already anxious and then these messages kind of came with a lot of fear, which they often do and said, Hey, your anxiety is because of this and you need to remove all these foods, which there's someone particularly, <laughs> I know someone online who does this like in a white coat quite often mm. that that's just going to make it worse. Like it's not yeah. going to help anything. So much worse. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for, for this conversation. I think we covered some important points and what I want to do now is just kind of let you share where the listeners can find you, like social media, any courses or anything that you might have, just kind of share where people can learn more. Sure. Yeah. On social media, I am present on Instagram and TikTok and my handle is feedermental. It's all one word. And I have a website, it's feedermental.com. I also, I have some resources on there. I have a blog and some, some random downloadable stuff. And then I also have a course, it's called Building Mental Health. I just did a lot of updates to it. The first time I created it was when I was steeped in the wellness industry. And so I've made several edits to it. And now it's, I think it's in tip top shape. So you can find that also at my website. Boom. So I'll share all of those links in the show notes if anyone wants to check those out, but highly recommend following Nicole on Instagram. I don't use TikTok because I'm too old for that, but if you guys are on TikTok, you can follow her there as well. It's at Feed Your Mental. It's all one word. Uh, I share her stuff all the time. So if you follow me, you're probably already following her or you've seen her account before, but thanks again, Nicole, for, for coming on and having a chat with us. And we really appreciate it. And thank you all for tuning into this episode of the podcast. And we'll talk soon. Thank you. All right. So after we got off the recording, Nicole decided that she wanted to offer a special discount for listeners of the show who may be interested in her course. So if you go to the show notes and you click on the link, that link is going to take you to a special checkout page that offers a 25% discount to her course. This is only going to be available until March 27th and that discount will expire but if you're hearing this before March 27th and you'd like to look into her course and maybe purchase it you can check out that link in the show notes to take advantage of that discount.